Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. everyone and welcome to episode 156 of the criminology podcast i'm mike ferguson and this is mike morford mr mike morford what's going on with you brother i'm doing good no complaints how about you yeah yeah i mean i i probably have some but who would listen who would want to listen is the question so like you i'll stay positive because i think it's important right now right to to kind of maintain a positive outlook on life yeah, and I, I think what's really cool is that everyone's been contained, sort of held up in their homes for so long. We're finally starting to venture out, at least I am, and it's just uh, it's helping me uh, clear my head a little bit, let's say that. Yeah, being able to to get out a little bit more is great. It kind of makes you feel like an explorer. You haven't been out for a while. Let's see what's out there. What's going on? We've got our Patreon shout outs to give. So let's give those. We had Michael McGinnis, Courtney Isabel jumped out at our highest level. We had James Ward and Heidi Valentino. So thanks to all of you for that support. Yeah. Thank you very much. That support goes a long way. We can't thank you enough. And if there's anyone out there that would like to help support criminology, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash criminology. All right, Morph, it's time to jump into this case. And in this episode, we are headed north to Canada once again. We've been there a number of times. We've handled quite a few Canadian cases. It was in 2019 that two Canadians, 18-year-old Briar Schmigelski and 19-year-old Cam McLeod, embarked on a deadly crime spree leading to one of the largest manhunts in Canadian history. As police tried to stop their violent spree that spanned 2,400 kilometers across the west coast of Canada, on July 15th, China Deese and her boyfriend Lucas Fowler were found dead on the Alaska Highway in British Columbia, Canada. Days later, 64-year-old Vancouver resident Leonard Dick was also found dead. The murders were shocking and police from the very beginning had their hands full. Initially, police didn't connect Briar Shumgelski and Cam McLeod to the deaths of China Deese, Lucas Fowler, or Leonard Dick, which unfortunately delayed progress in the cases and in apprehending the two killers. At first, police released a public statement asking for residents to keep a watchful eye out for the two teenagers, who were at that time believed to be not suspects, but rather in danger, targeted by whoever was on a killing spree. Cam and Briar were listed and treated as missing persons for four entire days before it became clear that they were the ones who were the source of any danger. Lucas Fowler was a 23-year-old from Australia. China Deese, an American, was 24 years old. Lucas and China both had three older siblings. Lucas loved nature, camping, travel, and riding dirt bikes. He had been on a two-year backpacking trip, and when he was in Croatia, he met China Deese, who was from North Carolina. The young couple was last seen by surveillance cameras on July 13th at a gas station in Fort Nelson, British Columbia. The camera captured them near their blue 1986 Chevrolet van. The lens caught them hugging and kissing each other before getting into the van and driving off toward more adventures during their road trip in Western Canada. It was clear that the young couple was happy and in love, unaware of what they would soon face. The road trip they were on would take them through Western Canada, headed to Alaska, and they had loaded up their van with everything they needed to keep them comfortable for the trip, which was supposed to last three weeks. China and Lucas celebrated Christmas 2019 together in the United States, and shortly after, 
Lucas traveled to British Columbia to work on a ranch. He and China stayed in constant contact, spending hours on the phone each day until she finally joined him. They spent a week together at the ranch before they started their road trip, which they were both very excited for. On July 12th, China and Lucas left Hudson's Hope, British Columbia, for their road trip to Alaska. They had about 21 hours to drive northwest through Canada before they would hit the Alaskan-Canadian border. They had fixed up their blue 1986 Chevrolet van for the trip. As fate would have it, Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod also set off on a road trip on July 12th. They told their friends and families that they were going to try and find work in the Yukon Territory in northwestern Canada. It was assumed that they were heading to Whitehorse to try to find jobs. The two boys were very close. They had both gotten jobs at the same Walmart store and even managed to work it out so that they had the same shifts. It was no secret to either of their families that they weren't happy working at Walmart. So it kind of seemed normal for them to go seek work together. The two young men each had some luggage packed into Cam's Dodge Ram truck. Later, an investigation by police would reveal that the two stopped at a Cabela's store in the Nemo, British Columbia, about an hour east of Port Alberni, and purchased a Soviet SKS carbine rifle, two magazines, and 20 rounds. During this visit to Cabela's, they went directly to the section of the store that had the weapons and ammunition. It seems this was exactly what they were shopping for and didn't buy the weapon and ammo on a whim. Cam was the one who was able to buy the rifle with his possession and acquisitions license. Lucas and China's van broke down on July 14th along the Alaska Highway, and they were spotted by mechanic Curtis Broughton and his wife, who stopped to see if they needed help. China and Lucas seemed to have everything under control and thought that they might have known what the problem was. They thought the van had flooded, and they were just waiting. A little while before trying to restart the engine, they also mentioned that they were going to call a tow truck, but that area of the Alaska Highway had no cell service. Curtis Broaden camped less than two miles away and was going to pass back by in the morning and plan to check on them then if they were still stranded. This sighting by Broaden was around 3.20 p.m. on July 14th, And he later told investigators that Lucas and China seemed happy. They were having a picnic while they waited to try to start the van. There were no signs of trouble besides the fact that the van was out of order at the moment. You mentioned something about their vehicle being flooded, which a lot of listeners, especially if they're younger, probably wouldn't know what that means. But on older vehicles, especially back in the 80s and and before that, before there was fuel injection, A lot of vehicles had carburetors, and if too much gas got in, saturated, and cut off the air in the carburetor, it could cause the vehicle to to stall or not start. And that kind of van being out there, when you run into carburetor troubles, I've driven a couple cars myself that had carburetor trouble, and they're not easy to deal with. And I could definitely see someone having issues with their carburetor and being stuck someplace. Yeah, I think you see it in older movies more of when people are trying to start the car and you see them pumping the gas, right? We don't do that today. We turn the key and normally the car just kind of starts up and we drive off. But a little different back in the day, just kind of harkens back to a, a much different time. Other people stopped to try and help the stranded couple as well. And some even called the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and reported a broken-down van. A road maintenance worker drove past her van and recalled that there was a man in the road, and a man and a woman closer to the van. The three appeared to be arguing. It turns out the man in the road was likely Cam McLeod or Briar Schmigelski, and the road worker may have witnessed Lucas and China's last moments alive. China and Lucas were last seen by a passerby at 7.15 p.m. The next day, on July 15th, At 3.25 a.m., Cam McLeod's Dodge Ram with a camper shell was seen at a gas station on Highway 97. This gas station was just under 160 kilometers north of where Lucas and China's van 
had broken down on the Alaska Highway. At 4.16 a.m., the ram was seen again a little over 200 kilometers north of the Alaska Highway crime scene. At 6.20 a.m., a truck driver saw two people lying in a ditch near the spot where Lucas and China's van had broken down and stopped to check on them. He found a young man and woman, and they were clearly deceased. The road maintenance worker who had passed by the van the day before asked a colleague to check and see if the couple in the van were okay because of the argument that she had witnessed. At 6.47 a.m., the colleague found the truck driver directing traffic, clearly upset about the bodies he had just found. We mentioned in a lot of episodes how frustrating it is that people don't stop. They don't check stuff out. They just keep on driving. But here's someone that took the time to stop. And I I can't imagine finding two dead bodies. That's got to be a horrible discovery for someone like that. Yeah. And in a lot of the cases we do, there is a person or persons who discovers a victim or victims in the story. I often think about, you know, what a traumatic experience that would be. You're just driving along, probably going to work early in the morning, something that you've done thousands of times in in your life. This morning is going to be very different. And I think more if it's going to be something that would stick with most people for the rest of their lives. I mean, are you ever really going to forget? The day that you found two young people dead on the side of the road, I don't think you are. I I think it's something that's going to haunt you. Now, obviously, you didn't do anything wrong, but the mere fact that you discovered the bodies, I think that's something that you're going to have to deal with. And, And in some people, I think could cause some seriously negative effects throughout their life. At 7.22 a.m., RCMP in Prince George's Operational Communication Center received a call from the road maintenance worker reporting that the colleague she sent had run into a trucker that found two dead bodies in a ditch. Other witnesses also started calling the RCMP as well. The nearest unit was the Fort Nelson RCMP, almost four hours away from the scene. The camper from the day before who had planned to check on the couple in the van, was unable to follow up with his plan because a road maintenance crew stopped him around 9.15 a.m. It was around 10.30 a.m. before Fort Nelson RCMP officers arrived and began to investigate the scene. They found the blue 1986 Chevy van belonging to Lucas with the side door open and one back window shattered. While investigating, they also found five spent shell casings. The bodies were identified as Lucas Fowler and China Deese just 36 hours after they were last seen on surveillance cameras. China and Lucas were dead. They were both lying face down about 10 feet away from the van and about five feet apart from each other. It was clear that Both Lucas and China had been shot to death. The spot where their bodies were found was just over 19 kilometers south of Liard Hot Springs, which is where they may have been headed. The side doors to the van were left open, and one of the windows had been shot or smashed out. Further examination showed that both China and Lucas were shot multiple times. And later, ballistically... The weapon used was determined to be an SKS carbine, a semi-automatic rifle. Later that day after the bodies were found, at around 4 p.m., Cam McLeod's truck was spotted at a gas station near Whitehorse in Yukon. This was about seven hours northwest of the crime scene. The next morning, July 16th, RCMP major crimes officers arrived to investigate the Alaska Highway crime scene at 9.15 a.m. China's phone and visa card were still inside the van. But Lucas's phone wasn't at the scene. This same morning, Professor Leonard Dick left his home on an eight-day road trip to northern British Columbia to spot grizzly bears. He had no idea that his route would take him into the crosshairs of two desperate killers. The following day, on July 17th, Cam McLeod called his family 
and told them that he and Briar had made it to the White Horse. Leonard Dick texted his wife that day, and there was no sign of anything amiss with him. At that point, he had not run into the two young killers, but another man did that same day. Alaska resident Ken Albertson had pulled off the Alaska Highway to try to stay safe and get some sleep. He had been on a family trip in Montana and had been driving home for 15 straight hours. While pulled off, he noticed a truck with a camper shell drive by very slowly before stopping ahead of his car. Someone got out of the truck carrying a large gun and headed to the tree line along the highway before starting to slowly creep toward his car. While moving toward his car, this person held their gun as if they were hunting. It wasn't held down by their side. As the person continued towards Ken's car, the truck began to back up, trying to box his car in. Ken immediately got back into the driver's seat and took off, racing from what he assumed was some people up to no good. So more if no doubt, this would be a scary situation. And I think a lot of people have been in something similar, not maybe to the point where, you know, individuals were trying to box you in or, or walking up on you with a gun. But many people have been in situations where it just didn't feel right, right? Like what they were seeing led them to believe that someone was up to no good. And I think in that situation, you got to get the heck out. And that's what Ken did. I think sometimes you get a gut instinct that something isn't right and you've got to trust your gut sometimes. And in this situation, it seems that it likely saved Ken's life. I I would say it most likely did. I would also make the argument that what's the harm, right? You're, You're not pulling out a gun and firing you're just deciding that you're going to get away from whatever is going on. I don't see the harm in that. You might not be correct. You might be overblowing a situation a little bit, but I'm with you, man. Trust your gut. Get out of that situation. It could save your life. But even if you're wrong, you know, I just don't see the downside in taking some type of evasive action. I think it's like that old saying, it's better to be safe than sorry. At the time Ken Albertson had that terrifying experience, he was acting because he felt he was in danger. But he didn't call police right away because he had escaped without incident. He was completely physically unscathed and the people didn't follow him. So he really didn't feel there was a reason to get police involved. But soon he understood exactly how lucky he was to have trusted his instincts and left. He had saved his own life that day and didn't even realize it until the RCMP later announced Cam McLeod and Briar Schmigelski as suspects in the murders, revealing that they had a rifle with them. On July 22nd, five days after his run-in, he finally contacted police and told them about his close encounter. Ken had been parked at a pullout along the Alaska Highway near Haines Junction, Yukon, about nine hours northwest of the site of Lucas and China's murders and just two hours west of Whitehorse, where Cam should have been, according to what he told his family when he called them. On July 18th, the day after Ken Albertson nearly escaped with his life, Leonard Dick texted his wife again, and everything seemed fine, but it was the last time he texted her, right around the time that he sent this last message to his wife. RCMP confirmed publicly, that the bodies found on the Alaska Highway were China D. San Lucas Fowler, and their families were finally notified about their deaths. It was later determined that at the time of this announcement, Cam and Briar were in Jade City, back in British Columbia, six hours southeast of Whitehorse. They had stopped in at Cassiar Mountain Jade Store for some free coffee. They were driving the Dodge Ram at the time, They later ended up about an hour south of Jade City in Deese Lake, where they bought a few items, some gloves and a chocolate bar. This was the last time that Briar's debit card was used. From Deese Lake, Cam and Briar ended up heading back south to British Columbia. Authorities believe this was due to vehicle trouble, 
and this is why they ended up in Manitoba after originally heading toward the Yukon. In the early morning of July 19th, Deese Lake RCMP received calls reporting a burning Ram truck on Highway 37. It would take hours, but police eventually determined that the burned Ram truck was registered to Cam McLeod, and news outlets began describing the truck which had been set ablaze. Upon hearing the news that the trucker grandson was traveling and had been found burning, Breyer's grandmother reported to authorities that Cam and Breyer were unaccounted for. Police released photos of the two young men and announced they were missing, possibly in danger. Authorities and the young man's families feared that they were in danger. That same day, there was a possible sighting of the two men near Terrace, British Columbia, driving a gray Toyota RAV4. As they headed east along British Columbia Highway 16, they stopped at a store in Vanderhoof at around 5 p.m. and bought electrical tape and a crowbar. The two had to stop for gas in Fairview, Alberta, as well as Meadow Lake, and Laron, Saskatchewan. Before the ram was traced to Cam McLeod, the body of a man in his 60s was found near Lake Dees, just a mile away from the burned truck. The man had several injuries, including multiple gunshot wounds that were later determined to have come from an SKS rifle. Police eventually linked the death of this man to the murders of China and Lucas based on shell casings found at both scenes. When this man's body was found, investigators had not yet identified the owner of the burned out Dodge truck and thought it might have belonged to this unidentified dead man. Later that day, the RCMP were able to find out that the Ram was registered to Cam McLeod, not the unidentified man as police originally suspected, Police released a sketch of the dead man asking for help from people in identifying him. Leonard Dick's wife, Helen, called the RCMP when she saw the sketch of the unidentified victim. She knew it was her husband, Leonard, a botany professor at the University of British Columbia. He loved to drive around in his RAV4, and when he did, he would sleep on the side of the road on pullouts, much like Ken Albertson was trying to do when he was approached. Police quickly realized that Leonard's gray 2011 Toyota RAV4 was missing. Although police feared that Cam and Briar might be in danger, it quickly became evident that they were likely responsible for the three murders, and a countrywide manhunt started for the pair. Many media reports state that they had as much as a three-day lead once officials realized they were the likely killers. It was once the police finally listed Briar... Schmigelski and Cam McLeod as the suspects, not victims, that the puzzle pieces started to fall into place. The Dodge Ram had been reported as heading north from the spot on the Alaska Highway where Lucas and China were found just after the time that they were believed to have been attacked. Cam's truck was found pretty close to the spot where Leonard Dick was found dead. Gloves and a chocolate bar the two presumed killers had purchased with a credit card were found near his body. Leonard's gray RAV4 was spotted at a gas station the morning he was killed, and it was reported by witnesses that Cam and Briar were driving it. They were spotted in both LaRange and Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan, driving the RAV4. On July 20th, Authorities released a sketch of the man that the road maintenance worker saw arguing with Lucas in China the night before they were found murdered. It looks like it could be Cam, but it's not really a dead ringer for either Cam or Briar. Investigators also contacted Cam's girlfriend, who told them that he and Briar had saved up for the road trip, but that on July 13th, she received a text from him informing her that they would not be coming back from the trip. It wasn't until July 22nd that the RCMP announced that there was officially a link between the two missing teenagers and the three murder victims in northern British Columbia. By then, Cam and Briar were spotted at a Thompson, Manitoba McDonald's. While there, they used the electrical tape they had purchased to create racing stripes on the back and the hood of the RAB4. This was obviously an attempt to disguise the RAV4 that they were driving. Later that day, 
Gillum RCMP received reports of a car on fire. It was a Toyota RAV4. On July 23rd, Cam and Breyer were publicly listed as fugitives after the RCMP announced that the two were officially suspects in all three murders and were last seen in northern Saskatchewan. The manhunt for the men was enormous. On July 24th, the RCMP's emergency response team was out in full force, as was their crisis negotiation team. The search even included canine and air services, which searched the area surrounding Gillum. On July 26th, the Minister of Public Safety and the Defense Minister approved RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky's request for assistance. Cameron Breyer's houses were searched, and police found maps and unspent ammunition. Just one day later, aerial reconnaissance started under RCMP command in Gillum and the surrounding area with a Royal Canadian Air Force search and rescue squadron, as well as a CC-130 Hercules using high thermal detection gear. But the search came up empty. The air search focused on swaths of land with heavily wooded areas and swamps that made searching difficult on foot. And there were even wild animals in the area, like grizzly bears, that made searching dangerous. I think, you know, a lot of times morph in the movies or in news footage, when a search is underway, a lot of times you'll see authorities, a lot of townsfolk holding hands, walking through areas, right? You've seen that all the time. They're, they're trying to stay very close to each other to make sure that they don't miss anything out in a field or something like that. We're talking about kind of a much different terrain here, very heavily wooded, swampy. And you mentioned it. You've got some very dangerous animals. You can't just throw a bunch of volunteer searchers out in an area where grizzly bears are roaming around. So, you know, to me, it does make sense to bring in some of this specialized type air technology, especially when you get into the area of like thermal detection type stuff. Okay. That seems like it would work very well in this situation, but obviously they didn't find anything. Yeah, it seems like not finding anything wasn't for lack of trying. It seems like they pulled out all the resources to try and locate these guys, and they just couldn't find anything. By the time the manhunt launched, Cam and Breyer had a pretty good head start. After torching the stolen RAV4, they headed into the woods on foot. But as we mentioned, there started to be a lot of media attention on the case. Someone in Cold Lake, Alberta, reported that they helped two young males with a stock Toyota RAV4 back on July 21st. The guy hadn't thought anything of it until he saw an announcement on Canada's Most Wanted. By the time that he reported his interaction, Cam and Breyer were already on their way to northern Manitoba, nearly 1,500 kilometers away, where they ended up burning Leonard Dick's car. The same day they were stuck in the mud, Cam and Briar were seen in Saskatchewan at a Meadow Lake store. The surveillance video from the store wasn't given to police for a number of days. Residents in the Gillum area also reported seeing Cam and Briar twice on July 22nd. Briar and Cam were actually stopped in Split Lake, Manitoba during an unrelated and routine alcohol checkpoint. This was the last confirmed sighting of Cam and Briar, but they passed through the checkpoint with no problem. Isn't it amazing that we live in a world where you can get anything you need when you need it right to your door? With DoorDash, you can get pretty much anything. And whether you're sick and you don't feel like getting out of the house, DoorDash has you covered. Maybe you're at a party and you run out of alcohol or ice or something like that, but you want to keep that party going. You need a little assist. DoorDash has you covered. Sometimes my wife and I, we just don't feel like making dinner. We're tired. We want to watch a show. That's when we hit DoorDash. 
DoorDash makes it easy to get the food that you want without all of the hassle. And I'm always amazed when I go on DoorDash by the selection. You know, whether you're in the mood for fast food or something a little fancy, maybe a nice steak. I know around me, they have just about everything. The hardest part for my wife and I is deciding on what we both want. That's the only trouble we ever have. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Must be 21 and over to order alcohol. Drink responsibly. Alcohol available only in select markets. Hey folks, we want to introduce you to the game June's Journey. If you haven't played this, you don't know what you're missing. It's so much fun. For you amateur sleuths, it really brings out the inner detective because it's all about finding clues and solving mysteries. You get to play as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You have to use your observation skills, solve mind-teasing mysteries. I love the graphics on this game. I love the hidden object aspect of it. It's full of mystery, danger, and even romance. You can even customize your very own luxurious estate island. And you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. So, you know, escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker while you travel back to the glamorous 1920. I've been playing this game for a couple of years now, and it's a great escape from everything that goes into putting out the podcast. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Gillum is quite a large town based on area, not population. There's not very many people who live there, just over 1,200. But at 1,200 square kilometers, it's larger than Los Angeles, California, or London, England. The main area where people live has one road leading to it. Unfortunately, while the roadblocks that were set up would snag any vehicle passing through, it didn't help in this case, because the boys took off on foot after they ditched their car. On July 28th, the RCMP finally received a tip from two members of the Indigenous Bear Clan patrol, who saw two people who matched the description of Cam and Briar at a landfill 199 kilometers southwest of Gillum. On July 29th, near the location of the burn RAV-4, investigators found a stash of more unspent rounds of ammunition. Another tip was received by the RCMP on July 30th. Two men who matched the description of Cam and Briar were described as suspicious and were reported to be near Iron Bridge, just east of Sault Ste. Marie. This was over a full day's drive south of Gillum, Manitoba. On the morning of July 31st, the two boys were possibly seen going east in a white car on Highway 11 and were reportedly in possession of a gun. This sighting was a seven-hour drive north and east from Sault Ste. Marie, still over a day's drive from Gill. While these possible sightings were promising, nothing came out of them. That same day, July 31st, the RCMP decided to scale back their operation after searching over 11,000 square kilometers and sweeping over 500 homes in the towns of Gillum, York Landing, and surrounding areas. By August 1st, it became clear to investigators that people were basically just reporting any two men they saw together as unconfirmed sightings were reported in many towns in Northwest Canada. Police were in a scramble to see what sightings might be legitimate. Finally, on August 2nd, the best and most credible lead was reported. A tour guide in Gillum saw a blue sleeping bag on the banks where the Nelson River meets the Hudson Bay. On August 3rd, a search found a rowboat on the Nelson River's northern shore. It was damaged and nearby were other items linked by the RCMP to Cam and Briar. Some of the things found during the search included Cam's backpack, which had a wallet, clothing, and ammunition inside. This location was 65 kilometers northeast of Gillum, and about 8.5 kilometers northeast of where Leonard Dick's burning Toyota had been found. Police searched the water nearby, but nothing was found. After days of searching, the RCMP publicly announced on August 6th that it had found belongings related to the two murder suspects. 
The next day, the RCMP and a member of the Fox Lake Cree Nation found the bodies of two young men in brush just over 1.5 kilometers west of the damaged boat. The gun that had been used to murder China, Lucas, and Leonard was with the bodies. It was believed that the bodies were the remains of Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod. They were found almost 3,200 kilometers away from the bodies of their first victims, China and Lucas. Investigators determined that Cam had shot Briar before he turned the gun on himself. It seemed apparent to investigators that they had a suicide pact with each other. Authorities recovered taped videos near the bodies. The videos had confessions on them. Almost a week later, on August 12th, autopsy reports confirmed that the two bodies were indeed Cam McLeod and Briar Schmigelski. The manhunt was officially over, but the authorities continued searching for the answers to many questions in this case. Investigators found that there was a lot more foreshadowing Briar's involvement in this spree than Cam's. In the video confessions, neither of the teens mentioned an actual motive for their murders, leaving everyone stuck speculating. There's been a lot of discussion online and in media surrounding Breyer's obsession with Hitler and the Third Reich. Both boys were described as quiet and nice. Neither had been in trouble, and they didn't have problems with drugs. Breyer's friends and fellow students had noticed that he had changed recently, and it had been sort of odd and making people uncomfortable. Breyer's father, Alan Schmigelski, mentioned that his son had been obsessed recently with violent video games and noted that he was raised on things like video games and YouTube. Neighbors and some of his classmates recalled that he had actually expressed fantasies about beheading people, taking his own life with a gun, or committing murders, and he had actually said things like, what if these games were real? None of these things were taken seriously at the time, but people started keeping Briar at a distance. Briar turned to online friends on gaming platforms like Steam and other chat apps. There, he was open about his admiration for people like Vladimir Putin and Adolf Hitler. He even posted photos of himself wearing swastikas and other things related to the Nazis. There was one photo of Briar in a gas mask. The video games he liked to play were about strategy and war. Some of the photos he shared online show him holding a gun that looks a lot like an SKS semi-automatic rifle, the type of weapon used to kill China, Lucas, and Leonard. It's also been noted that Breyer liked to use that specific gun in some of the games that he played. And while his online friends had no idea that he would go on to be part of these types of murders, they soon began to disassociate themselves with Briar. It was later learned that just before their trip, a girl had rejected Briar, possibly sending him into a rage. Cam had a girlfriend, and he was in contact with her during the trip. Both boys had Facebook pages that linked to an account that had the same username as a YouTube, Steam, and Twitch account. All three of those accounts posted the same kind of things, including charged political posts, sexualized Japanese anime, the communist icon, and the Soviet flag. The profile photo for the YouTube account was Hitler's eagle. Both Cam and Breyer's Steam accounts were last active one week before Cam's Dodge Ram was found on fire on Highway 37. One of Breyer's grandmother's neighbors was shocked that one of her son's former friends would be suspected of something like this. This neighbor knew Cam from his job at Walmart and recalls him being helpful and having a nice smile. One unnamed witness contacted the RCMP during the manhunt for the boys, and their statements conflicted with just about everyone else's statements about the teens. This person believed that both boys were capable of murder and suspected that they had killed the three people along the Alaska Highway. It's unclear who this person was, The six confession tapes found were filmed on Leonard Dick's stolen camera. In four of the videos, Cam and Breyer are taking responsibility for the three murders throughout Canada, 
and expressing future plans to kill more innocent people. One plan mentioned was to travel to Hudson Bay, where they would hijack a ship and sail to somewhere like Africa or Europe. The fifth video was only six seconds long and was probably recorded by accident. The last two videos on the camera were basically video suicide notes from Cam and Breyer, who explained their suicide pact and left last wishes for the handling of their bodies. Both boys requested to be cremated. The RCMP have not released the videos to the public. As it's been reported, there were no clear motives discussed in the videos and nothing really to learn about how this could have been prevented. And more for me, I think this is one of the really tough parts. You know, I think it's natural for people to want to know why these murders occurred. Not that you would ever agree with the reasoning or understand the reasoning, but I think in these types of cases, you want to know what was going on in these kids' heads, why they thought they needed to or wanted to do the things that they did. I think the problem here is we likely never will know. The RCMP believed that releasing the confession videos would only serve to give the boys notoriety and encourage others to copy their crimes. Behavioral analysts told the RCMP that they believe the two boys made the videos for notoriety, so it makes sense not to give them that through those videos, even if they're not around to actually see it. Breyer's father, Alan, knew what the outcome of his son's killing spree would be. Before his son was found dead, he told reporters and police that he believed the son was suicidal because normal children don't want to hurt people like that. He believed his son was in immense emotional pain and believes that was basically the reason behind Breyer's part in the spree. He shared with viewers his emotional pain, knowing that he would never see his son alive again. This is not to say that Mr. Schmigelski endorsed his son's actions, nor did he have any advance notice of what his son was going to do. The two boys had always been close. They grew up together, and for whatever reason, they decided to die together. Like in so many other cases of senseless violence, there's no clear reason and nothing that you could piece together into anything that would make sense or would justify the loss of innocent lives. In Canada, the vastness of the land and remoteness of some of these locations made it hard for the authorities to find these suspects. They were able to travel quicker than people could report their sightings. And, you know, some of that has to do with the lack of cell service in some of these locations across the northwest part of the country. I think one thing more, if you definitely have to talk about, is it's horrible that three people lost their lives. But from everything that we kind of know, and some of the things that these individuals said before they went on their murder spree, I think the victim count could have been much higher. The problem is one victim is too many, right? When you're talking about the families of China Deese, Lucas Fowler, and Leonard Dick, I, I don't know that they can take any type of solace in that because they lost their loved ones. That's horrible. It's tragic. But I do think it's true that these individuals could have killed many more people and maybe had plans to kill many more people. Yeah, I think that's true in a lot of cases. I do too. And, and again, I don't want that to seem callous. I'm not discounting the murders that did occur. I'm simply pointing out that based on some of their conversations, some of the things that they had talked with friends about or things that they had posted, it does seem like that they had plans to turn this into a much bigger murder spree than it ultimately was. So Morph, as we wrap up this case, there's just a few things that I kind of want to touch on. I think these cases are always difficult when you have really no motive that is given by the perpetrators Obviously, there's no trial, right, for certain facts to come out because both individuals died. 
before police even got to question them, their victims were chosen randomly. And then I think you also have to think about this area of Canada and some of the parts that are very remote and everything that was involved in the search. There really was a lot going on in this case. But I think, you know, let's focus on the two boys. You know, you didn't hear us talk a lot about, okay, these were really bad kids. They had incredibly long rap sheets. Everybody thought that they were headed for trouble. There were some signs, obviously, that they were into some things that you would say are questionable, right? I think anytime you're identifying with Hitler, okay, people are going to look at that and, and really question you as to what's going on in your head, especially if you're you know, putting pictures of him or symbols of what he stood for on your social media accounts and, and different things like that. I think that was definitely the case. And people, even friends, began to notice that. They started distancing themselves from, you know, these kids, which I think is bound to happen. Then there's the violent video games. Does that play a factor in what happened? I don't know. I've played violent video games my entire life. I'm 47 years old and I still play violent video games, war games, things like that. They've never made me personally want to go out and hurt someone. I think you can make the argument that they help desensitize people, as does a lot of things that's going on in our current society. We see a lot more violence now than I think we did in the past. Now, I don't play video games personally, but... It's been one of those arguments, one of those debates over a long period of time that it seems like people asking, are these games leading to people doing bad things? And you have never done anything, and millions of other people have played these games and never done anything. Yet some people, it seems to have an impact. Maybe there's some underlying issue that some people have where these video games just feed into that and help set them off possibly into some of these bad situations. Yeah. My, my thing is possibly. Yeah. I mean, could it be a factor? I'm not discounting it. I think you have to look at these types of cases as it's probably not just one thing, right? It's probably not just violent video games. It's probably not just the fact that, you know, one of the kids had a girl break up with him. It's going to take a lot of different things all mixed together to lead someone or two individuals to decide to do something like this. I just don't see it normally as being one thing. You know, I don't think you can pin it on violent video games or this or that, but obviously there was something that caused these two individuals. Cause that's the other thing you got to look at, right? This wasn't a lone killer. This was two friends deciding to do this together. So that adds a dynamic to it as well. It's not the lone gunman. This is two people conspiring together and making that decision that, yeah, this is a good idea. This is what we're going to do. That's a fascinating part to me is that two people could come together and find each other and hatch this kind of plan and carry it out. It, it's sort of reminiscent to me, at least, of a Columbine situation. I don't know what these people are thinking, but somehow they find each other and they they feed each other or feed off of each other, I should say. And that maybe allows them to carry it a little bit further from fantasy to eventual reality. Yeah, I, th- I think you're making a good point there because, you know, on your own, would you... Even if you had the fantasies, would you take it to the ultimate step? But if you're emboldened by another person who shares those same fantasies and you talk about it all the time, you know, maybe that's how in this case it happened, right? They fed off of each other and it built and built and finally decided to do what they did. I don't know. We're speculating. And I think that's 
you know, part of the, the troubling aspect of this case is we just don't know ultimately why they decided to do what they did. What we do know is that, you know, three innocent people lost their lives. I don't want to forget that China, Lucas and Leonard and their families had to deal with the aftermath. They have to live with that. And they, like us, have to try to figure out why this happened, too. It has to be so hard for the families dealing with all of that. But at the end of the day, to have no idea, really, why these kids chose to do what they did. It's tough. Yeah, and I really feel for the, for the three victims, China, Lucas, and Leonard. They were just going about their their daily lives and randomly encountered these these two kids that were obviously troubled. And because of that encounter, their their lives ended. It's very tragic. And it's also very scary, right, to think about from the standpoint of we're all going about our daily lives. We're all doing what we need to do. We go to work. We stop off at a convenience store. We stop to get gas. It's why I always say that, you know, you, you kind of have to keep your head on a swivel, not to be paranoid, not to be, you know, kind of shut up in a cocoon, but as you're going along, you know, with your daily life, you, you got to watch out. You have to be aware of what's going on around you. Because to me, Morph, you know, these weren't individuals who put themselves into a very dangerous situation and then were killed because that happens as well, right? If you're going to break into somebody's house in the middle of the night, well, you're putting yourself in a very dangerous position. Somebody could have a gun, they could shoot you. But when you're just going along with your your daily activities, you don't expect to lose your life at the hands of someone else. We just don't expect that. It, that is what is very scary. A person that you don't know, you've never met, you didn't do anything to, and they just chose you randomly to die. Thanks goes out to Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. As always, if you love the show, but you haven't done so yet, go out, give us a rating. Keep telling your friends that word of mouth about the criminology podcast to your true crime loving friends really goes a long way. If you want to find us on social media, we're on Twitter with the handle at criminology pod. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for criminology podcast or by joining our Facebook discussion group, criminology podcast discussion and fans. So that's it for our episode on the Canadian spree killers, Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod, but we'll be back with everyone next Saturday night with an all new episode of criminology. So for Mike and Morph, we'll talk to you next week. Take care, everyone.